thank you for tuning in to Victims to Victorious. My name is Angel Fall. Each and every week we take a look at the public health solutions for the epi- epidemic of gun violence. I started a little bit on epidemic because right now we are under siege from a pandemic all around the world. It's called COVID-19. So what is the intersection of uh, gun violence and COVID-19? We've done a couple of shows like last week, beaten up and locked down. Domestic violence has escalated during this pandemic all around the world, so much so that the United Nations actually is um, dispensing money and funding programs for women all around the world who find themselves locked down with their abusers. So we're going to take a look at Chicago again. We often look at Chicago when we talk about the, the epidemic of gun violence. And if you're following the news, Chicago has now become the Midwest epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. So how is that related? I always take a look at articles that are available <clears throat> and explain to you um, what the epidemiological principles are here. So I'm going to define the pandemic and I'm going to define an epidemic because the title of today's show is Double Trouble, Chicago's Pandemic. We're going to see the coronavirus next to that and Chicago's epidemic in parentheses gun violence. So a pandemic means that a disease is spreading quickly across national boundaries. An epidemic is simply a spike in the curve of what's called endemic disease. I am a uh, public health reporter who believes in the epidemiological concept that violence is an epidemic, especially in the United States of America, and it is a preventable occurrence. When you study public health, you believe that most diseases, including chronic and infectious, can be prevented. If you're on lockdown right now, social distancing is a prevention. If you're on lockdown right now, extra vigilance concerning hand washing is um, is a way of preventing the pandemic known as COVID-19. So when there is endemic disease, it occurs naturally in the population. And then there's a spike. And that spike means that there all of a sudden there are new cases of something that you, we have been living with without a lot of lethality, meaning without a lot of death and destruction. And all of a sudden when that spike starts to increase at an exponential rate and travel very, very far, we have a pandemic. So we're going to take a look at Chicago because Chicago is often the focus of gun violence and currently, unfortunately, it's also the focus of the COVID-19 virus new cases, which epidemiological charts are going to call the burden and the prevalence of the disease. It's ironic that when we talk about gun violence that Chicago is actually founded by Jean-Baptiste Point de Sable. I'm saying it in French. My parents sent me to French school before I could read or write in English. And Jean-Baptiste Point de Sable is regarded as the first permanent non-Indigenous settler of what would later become Chicago, Illinois. And he is recognized as the founder of Chicago. Of course, there are schools named after him. There's a museum in his honor. And um, ironically, Jean-Baptiste is born in Saint-Marc, Haiti, Haiti. Uh, and he died supposedly in St. Charles, Missouri. He had a Native American for a wife. And her name is Kitawawa. Call in or leave me a message 
if I mispronounced it. And what's interesting here, I want you to appreciate the irony. The city of Chicago was founded by a black man. Um, in 1871, the city of Chicago actually has paid African-American firefighters. Shout out to everyone at the Chicago uh, Black Fire Brigade. They do wonderful things. And now you have this modern-day tragedy of a disproportionate amount of African-American people dying from gunshot wounds and a disproportionate amount of African-American people becoming infected with the virus. Now I'm going to read from Gun Violence Continues in Chicago Amid Stay-at-Home Orders. If you're online, you can go to time.com slash 5818553 slash gun hyphen violence. If that, uh, if that URL is too long for you, I take them. Um, I respond to direct messages on Twitter. That's on air angel. So I'm reading from the article. It's like a double whammy. We are catching a double. We have the virus and the virus violence to worry about. Rodney Phillips, a violence prevention outreach worker in Chicago, tells Time. It's just an uphill battle. Remember, I've done a couple of shows where we mentioned cure violence in Chicago, found by Gary Sletkin. Some, people, some police departments have seen crime rates fall since outbreaks emerged in their cities. The New York City Police Department, NYPD, reported a 20% dip in crime over the last two weeks of March after declaring a state of emergency over COVID-19. Los Angeles has also seen an 11% increase in crime over the month of March. Uh, this article was uh, this article came out uh, on uh, April 27th. Gun crime gun crime prevention activists cite a combination of factors, including stretched police resources, socioeconomic concerns within low-income neighborhoods, and even the impact of warmer weather that's impacted the violence. We also did a show about the effects of temperature on violence. And for any of my archive shows, go to blacktalkradionetwork.com and look for the really large graphic that says V2V that um, my producer and the founder of Black Talk Radio, the Black Talk Radio Project, does for me, um, that's Scotty Reed. In the week before the stay-at-home order was announced, 25 shootings were recorded in Chicago. In the first week since, there were 41 shootings. In the second week, there were 40. In 2019, during the same period, between March 30th to April 5th, saw 28 shootings. Look at the difference. In the week before the stay-at-home order was announced, there were 25 shootings which were recorded in Chicago. And remember, this is, we are in the end of April. Um, the Centers for Disease Control and other people are having discussions about the COVID virus actually probably appearing during the normal influenza season, but we are not actually in the throes of the pandemic until around March 22nd. On Tuesday, April 7th alone, 21 people were shot, including a five-year-old girl sitting outside a Southside residence. Seven were killed. One victim was a 27-year-old woman who police believe was hit by a stray bullet. It was the single worst shooting day this year in Chicago. Four months in. I want the listeners to say to notice that. Going back to the article, again, you can find the article on the Internet. Gun violence continues in Chicago. I did stay at home orders. If you can't find it, we have questions for me. Um, hit me up on Twitter 
on-air angel. People know who the shooters are. You know who you are. These cowards cannot be given any shelter, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot said at an April 8th press conference, calling for a reduction to the gun violence. In the middle of this worldwide pandemic, our precious health resources needed to be treating COVID-19 patients and those needing acute care. There was actually an article online called in the from the New York Times, and uh, Eleanor Kaufman outside Penn Presbyterian Medical Center in Philadelphia is actually pleading for people to not shoot so she can have ICU beds available, and there are fewer people in the emergency room who are not from the not suffering from the um, what we call secondary and tertiary disease stage of an, uh, in an epidemic, meaning they have very severe symptoms. Here's what she said, and we'll come back to the Chicago article. My pager goes off again. The police are en route to my hospital. They're bringing a gunshot room victim, ETA, right now. I get these pages almost every night at the trauma center where I work. I rush to put on my protective equipment to guard against blood and other bodily fluids. But for the first time, I'm saving clean masks to reuse them. Because of coronavirus, the parents of my patients need a special escort because visitors are not allowed in the waiting room. I can't bring a family member to a gunshot victim's bedside in the intensive care unit. I can't tell a frightened mother that she can stay as long as she wants. Doctors like me are trying to keep the world safe from the coronavirus pandemic, but thousands of families in America are already caught in the country's existing epidemic, gun violence, hence the title that I chose today, Double Trouble, Chicago's Pandemic and Epidemic, and I defined that a little bit earlier. Gun violence has killed as many people this year as coronavirus. Gun violence has killed as many people this year as coronavirus. Cumulative deaths across the United States due to gun violence and COVID-19. COVID-19 cumulative deaths, according to this chart, which was published, uh, the data was from March 30th this year. There were 3,000 COVID deaths, um, COVID-19 deaths. According to the chart, there were 4,000 deaths related directly to gun homicide. Firearm injuries are calamitous for more than 120,000 people shot each year and their families. And those of you who have been following me, uh, since last year, when we look at the number of people shot, everyone who's shot does not die. But the morbidity, and that's the ep- epidemiological word, means these people have illnesses. They are paralyzed. They need a kidney transplant. They become blind, for instance. They lose loss. They lose the use of a limb. So 120,000 people are shot each year in the United States. But the consequences for our health system are even more dire as we fight the coronavirus. We need ICU beds. We need ventilators. We need personnel to care for the wave of COVID-19 patients. This is Eleanor Kaufman, a doctor at the Penn Presbyterian Medical Center in Philadelphia, writing uh, her own opinion in the New York Times article that was published earlier, that was published last month. Returning to the article, doctors like me are trying to keep the world safe from the coronavirus pandemic. And then we read the chart. Firearm injuries are calamitous for more than 100,000 
people shot each year in the United States and their families. But the consequences of our health system are even more dire as we fight the coronavirus. If you just tuned in, we're reading, um, we're catching back, backtracking a little bit on the article in the New York Times that says, please stop shooting, written by a doctor, an ER doctor. We need ICU beds, we need ventilators, we need personnel to care for the wave of COVID-19 patients, but gunshot victims are now fighting for space and resources inside of America's overcrowded ICUs. I feel this crisis intimately at my hospital here. There are more than 120 shootings in Philadelphia last month. We began the show by looking at Chicago, but other large urban cities with disenfranchised African-American populations and black and brown people um, have these kind of numbers. There's a connectivity and a trend within these large cities. This is why Cure Violence has had success in these large cities. And you haven't, if you don't know about Cure Violence, type it into Google, obviously look at what they're doing. And you can also visit um, the several of the shows I did where we mentioned the Cure Violence projects. And those shows are archived on the Black Talk Radio uh, network. Other cities are seeing similar problems. Returning to the article, Mayor Jack Young of Baltimore issued a plea to his city last month, save hospital resources for COVID-19 patients by putting your guns down. And of course, that's easier said than done. If you have a culture of gun violence based on rap music, based on the inability to solve interpersonal conflicts without violence, this culture is going to go on no matter what. You have to break the cycle. So that's why places like uh, programs like Cure Violence are able to interrupt their outreach workers are called violence interrupters. Now, their outreach workers in these large cities right now, they're not working because of social distancing. Across the country, more than 80,000 people visit the emergency department for gunshot wounds each year. About one in four will be admitted to the ICU, and they'll stay for an average of three days. Valuable bed space that is desperately needed, according to the Society for Critical Care Medicine, there are just 68,558 adult ICU beds in the country. Remember, she's writing this now during the pandemic. And if you have been watching the news, uh, you can see that uh, Governor Cuomo, for instance, was asking for more ICU beds to be available. And one of the problems in the United States of America is that the for-profit hospitals use business models to to predict how many they would use without a pandemic. Those are different from public health models. Returning to the article, if you just tuned in, we're looking at the New York Times article. It's an opinion, it's in the opinion uh, section written by a doctor in Philadelphia. We don't yet know how the COVID-19 pandemic will affect gun violence, according to the Philadelphia Police Department. Crime is down overall since social distancing mandates went into effect, but Shootings have not slowed and even maybe increasing. Last week we did a show called Beat Up and Locked Down. And what we showed is, remember, a woman who was in the house with a gun who's a victim of domestic violence is more likely to be shot with it and also has experience being threatened with it. So some of the data, especially the New York data, says that there has been a 20% increase in phone calls to the hotline because now you are locked down with a person who maybe you – Maybe you uh, had filed a restraining order against them 
before the lockdown and the court isn't papering it, for instance. Social distancing might reduce conflicts and arguments that can lead to violence, but just as easily, the stress on relationships and livelihoods may increase domestic violence, and we spoke about that last week. Suicides already make up 60% of firearm deaths and could rise. Uh, the suicide death by firearm is most exclusively committed by a white man. An interesting irony here is that most African-American males are killed by friends, relatives, or acquaintances. Most white men are, are killed by their own hand. And in some counties, when you look at the death certificate, suicide actually says matter of death, homicide. Okay. Sometimes the death certificate says that because the person has actually killed themselves and it is still considered a crime. Returning to the New York Times article, I've also watched with concern as people line up in front of gun stores. We did a show on that also. Stocking up on firearms and ammunition supposedly to protect themselves. Instead, they are likely putting themselves and their families at risk as cooped up children are at risk of exploring these newly purchased weapons and injuring themselves or others. A gun in the home is most likely to kill someone in the home, not a burglar or even a neighbor. The economic effects of this pandemic are likely to hit hardest for those with the fewest resources. Neighborhoods and communities that are already at risk for violence because of systemic racism and poverty will suffer, and violence in these areas may increase even further. We love taking care of patients, the doctor continues. But each patient injured by firearms admitted to the intensive care unit is its own tragedy. Every one of these ICU admissions is preventable because every one of these injuries is preventable. I love the way the doctor says that because here on Victims to Victorious, we have been espousing that from day one. Crimes against African-American men committed with a firearm are preventable. If you are online, go to LinkedIn. Look up uh, the articles published by Lisa Rose-Rodriguez, an epidemiologist trained at the University of Connecticut. She's advocating for reducing gun violence by increasing the ability of African-American males to solve their interpersonal conflicts without a weapon. Returning to the New York Times article, we have overcome public health crises in the past. The same kind of public health approach that cut death rates from motor vehicles by half even though we drive more than ever, could be used to reduce firearm injuries. But we need dedicated professionals, comprehensive data, and social political will to identify and carry out evidence-based solutions. What evidence-based solutions means is you have evidence. <clears throat> For instance, no one is disputing the evidence that African-American men are most likely to kill a friend, acquaintance, or a relative. That's real evidence. So how are you going to solve that? You can't make people get rid of their consanguine relationships. That means the bloodline. You might not be able to have people move. But what if your prevention is when you get in a conflict that you don't resolve it with a weapon? That is how you talk about an evidence-based solution. And an evidence-based solution then can be applied through public health models, and that's a prevention. Right now during the pandemic, no matter where you are, the CDC and the Surgeon General are advocating for certain things like social distancing. Well, they know that by staying six feet apart from someone, if someone coughs or sneezes, 
and sneezes, and they have been infected with the COVID virus, the droplets from the coughing and the sneezing, it takes it, you're standing too far apart, theoretically, for those droplets to land on you. So that would be an example of an evidence, evidence-based solution that is, in fact, a prevention that is put in place by public health models. These strategies range from licensing laws for firearm dealers and purchases or red flags or making data available to researchers to community-based focused deterrence programs. COVID-19 is going to require all our public health resources, but it is far from the only public health crisis we are facing. Again, if you just tuned in, the title of today's show is Double Trouble. If we can come together to combat these challenges, let us stay together to work on another. So please stop shooting. We need the beds. And that's um, what people often call the op-ed piece. That is a a guest editor in the New York Times. Her name is um, Eleanor Kaufman. She is a fellow in surgical critical care and trauma surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Teresa S. Richmond, who contributed to this piece, is a professor of nursing and associate dean for research and innovation at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and the research director of the Penn Injury Science Center. A lot of states and even some um, even some large cities have an injury prevention program that's actually funded with public funding. Uh, the Times is committed, the New York Times is committed to publishing a diversity of letters to the editor. If you're listening to me and you want to have your opinion known in the New York Times about the gun violence in Chicago, the pandemic, gun violence um, all around the world, you can send your letter to letters at newyorktimes.com. So that is an article. Again, if you can't find it, send me a direct message um, on Air Angel at Twitter. So that doctor is advocating for people to stay home. And then they mentioned to stay home, stop shooting. The Baltimore governor also advocated for that. If a doctor has to choose between someone who needs a ventilator and someone he has to operate on who has gunshot wounds, that choice is called treatment efficacy. I'm just going to throw that out there. So let's return back to the the article um, that focuses on Chicago, gun violence in Chicago amid stay-at-home orders. In the week before the stay-at-home was ordered, we, I read that there were 25 shootings which were recorded in Chicago. I'm, I'm backtracking this for people who just tuned in. In the first week since, there were 41 shootings in the second week, and there were 40. In 2019, in the same period, from March 30th to April 5th, there were 28 shootings only. People know who the shooters are, is what Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot said on April 8th at a press conference calling for a reduction to gun violence. In the the middle of the world pandemic, our precious health resources need to be treating COVID-19 patients and those needing acute care. So we're just backtracking a little bit so you can connect the dots. The mayor of Chicago is saying that she wasn't explicit as other people who just said, stop shooting each other because we need the beds. Page three. Outreach workers like Rodney Phillips usually spend a lot of time in the streets in areas prone to gun violence, trying to quell conflicts between individuals and gangs. 
Remember, I mentioned that there's an article on LinkedIn uh, by the epidemiologist Lisa Rose Rodriguez that dis- specifically discuss the interpersonal conflict resolutions that are available when people who are at risk are trained. And Cure Violence, which is, was started in Chicago, is very adroit at completing these types of outreach tasks. However, their hands are tied right now because of social distancing. Since the crisis began, however, social distancing mandates and the stay-at-home order mean that face-to-face mediation efforts are not happening as frequently, if at all. I made that commentary. It's here in the article, too. Instead, they are left de-escalating disputes and checking with their contacts over phone calls, text messaging, and via social media, which they can make, which they say makes their work more challenging. Community organizers and gun violence prevention advocates are not activists, are now also working to educate people on the virus and the importance of social distancing. Illinois currently has the ninth most coronavirus cases of all 50 states and the eighth most deaths. The state's coronavirus curve is continuing to rise as of the writing of this article with 16,424 confirmed COVID-19 cases and 529 deaths as of April 10th, according to a tracker from Johns Hopkins University. And if you do make contact with Lisa Rose Rodriguez on LinkedIn, she has received the um, gun violence training certificate from, from Johns Hopkins University. And during this pandemic even, she can be reached using FaceTime, um, Zoom, et cetera. She can train your nonprofit organization on how to reduce gun violence within the population you might already have in a program. And that, of course, would be young adults or young teenage African-American males and young teenage uh, black, when I say black and brown, we mean Latino too, because some, some Latino people, their ethnicity is Puerto Rican or Dominican, but their race is black. <clears throat> Returning to the article, in the Chicago metropolitan area, Specifically, there are 7,230 confirmed cases and 218 deaths. Again, this is as of the writing of the article. Chicago's Auburn-Gresham neighborhood, if I've misspoken in terms of pronunciations, let me know in the comments section on Black Talk Radio Network. The area where the five-year-old girl was shot on April 7th has the most coronavirus cases, with 310 confirmed as of April 10th, according to the Illinois Department of Health. The city's Westridge neighborhood has the second most, with 298 confirmed cases, following by Chatham at 276 confirmed cases, and Roseland, which has 251. Auburn, Gresham, Tatham, and Roseland are all considered low-income neighborhoods and are, are each home to a majority black population. Low-income neighborhoods are problematic in healthcare models because even though Medicare is available or Medicaid is available, because of course elderly people who have not been impoverished before very often become impoverished while they are when, once they're retired because they may not have a pension and they may be dependent on Social Security. And Social Security isn't a pension. Or, however, Social Security gets you Medicare benefits, How, but also. Those benefits are very difficult to negotiate. So in a low-income population, you historically see, and this is me commentating on the article, you, you 
historically see a lack of access to the services. So how does lack of access turn out? Well, right now in the pandemic, which is really concerning to me, is that um, especially when you look on CNN or MSNBC and you see doctors from New York who say, you know, we're doing telehealth visits. First of all, you have to have an iPhone for telehealth. Some telehealth visits are included if you're an elderly person in your Medicare supplement part, your other parts, you know, there's like A, B, C, D. If you are not computer literate or don't have a smartphone, you will not be able to use telemed. If your Medicare supplement doesn't have it as part of a benefit, it's not even on your phone. So these are some of the technical barriers to gaining access in this point in time. Another, another barrier to gaining access is actually transportation. Can you get to the doctor? Low-income people often uh, may live in a neighborhood where there are no health clinics. You have a doctor, but he's not within walking distance of where you live. You have to take transportation. And if you are Spanish-speaking or have another language as your first language, then you have the dilemma of can I get a translator? Can the documents be translated? Can my, um, my Walgreens, for instance, of course, will print out your prescription details in Spanish, but language becomes a barrier to healthcare access for low-income people. And um, the final thing I want to say about low-income people, a lot of low-income people are illegal aliens. So if you're an illegal immigrant without the proper papers, what does that look like for you to show up, have no identification, you know you're not supposed to be in the of the country, you're not here illegally, and now you need help for a pandemic. Those are some things I'm throwing out there. If you have a comment for me, go to the Black Talk Radio Network and uh, look for V2V, Victims to Victorious, and type a comment. Returning to the article, Chatham and Roseland are all considered low-income neighborhoods and are each home to a majority black population. Demographic data on COVID-19 infections released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, revealed that African-Americans are being disproportionately impacted by the virus. That's what we call overrepresented in epidemiology. Based on 1,482 coronavirus patients across 14 states, black patients make up a third of the cases while being only 18% of the state's total population. I'm going to read that again. Based on 1,482 coronavirus patients across 14 states, black patients make up a third of the cases while being only 18% of the state's total population. If you're listening to me, you might wonder why is that? One factor that we mentioned was low income. Another factor is what is called comorbidities. Comorbidities mean simply this. I'm sure if you're African-American and you're listening, you have an aunt who has the sugar, you have another aunt who has the pressure, your grandmother has the sugar and the pressure. Epidemiologists call that comorbidity, and those are chronic diseases. And if you are paying attention to who's at risk, people with certain underlying diseases are at more risk for the virus. And so people who have type 2 diabetes and hypertension are at risk. And again, the African-American population is overrepresented in these numbers. There are medical anthropologists and others who are studying it, but there is some data out there now that says the stress of racism impacts the immune system. And there are other people who say 
that the difference and the research is out here. You can send me a message, direct message on uh, Twitter, on your angel, other information out here about the differences in the diet between here and where we were in Africa, certain foods that we would never have eaten here. Eaten in Africa, we are eating here, and this is causing health problems. Demographic data on COVID-19 infections released by the Centers for Disease Control reveal that, and I'm reading it one more time for people who are not paying attention, <clears throat> based on 1,482 coronavirus patients across 14 states, black patients make up a third of the cases, being only 18% of the state's total population. <clears throat> Excuse me. These findings, including the potential impact of both sex and race on COVID-19, associated hospitalization rates, need to be confirmed with additional data, the CDC concluded. In Chicago, 70% of COVID-19 fatalities were African-American, according to the data released on April 6th. The African-American community makes up 30% of the city's population. And we began the show titled Double Trouble. Chicago's pandemic and epidemic, the pandemic being COVID-19 and the epidemic being gun violence. The irony of this town being, of Chicago, it's, it's, you know, Chicago's a huge Midwest city. It's the biggest uh, Midwest city, if I'm not mistaken. The irony that it's founded by a black person and there are some firsts in Chicago. For instance, I mentioned at the top of the show, you have municipal firefighters being paid as city employees in 1871. I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, and I had I have never I had never ever ever seen an African American firefighter until I went to Washington D.C. Chicago has some firsts for African American people. However, the poverty, the discrimination, the vestiges of racism create what we call healthcare inequities. Returning to the article, if you want to find the article online, it's called Gun Violence Continues in Chicago Amid Stay-at-Home Orders. Years of systematic racism, lack of investment, and high unemployment have left our community vulnerable to this pandemic, Alderman Howard Brooken said, whose ward includes Auburn Gresham, told local, told local news station WTTW. Hopefully, this disparity will shock the consciousness of people of goodwill to work hard to close the healthcare gap that exists in the African American community. Statistics also show that low income minority areas are being affected more by the virus in the city across the US dealing with large scale outbreaks. In New York City data uh, released by the NYC Department of, of Health and Mental Hygiene show that the highest number of confirmed, of confirmed cases of COVID-19 consistently came from non-white and low-income neighborhoods. Disenfranchised parts of Detroit, Michigan, Milwaukee County, Wisconsin, and Charlotte, North Carolina have shown similar trends. We are broadcasting from Cleveland, Ohio at this time. And hopefully when the um, travel bans come up, and yes, there are travel bans, Yes, there really are state troopers turning people away at the border or asking them to go into quarantine in different states. When the travel ban is up, I hope to broadcast from Chicago and get a really good dialogue going on how um, Mayor Lightfoot can really, really, really prevent gun violence by using these public health models 
that we have been advocating uh, since last year. Anthony Guglielmi, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, Guglielmi, a CPD spokesperson, and if I mispronounce something, you dispute my facts, hit me up on Twitter on Air Angel. He tells the time that crime levels have ebbed and flowed since the start of the epidemic. The CPD does not currently believe that there is any conclusive evidence on how the virus is impacting violence. Notice that this is what the policeman is saying, even though the numbers show they have had twice as many shootings. The rate of violent crime overall is down in the city for March 2020 compared to March 19, but not for shootings. Other crimes and incidents of violence that occur more often in close quarters are anticipated, anticipated to increase. And of course, domestic violence crimes have increased all over the world. And the UN actually has decided that part of the pandemic, um, a pandemic protocol is outreach to women who are at risk for being abused by their spouses or intimate partners. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, a growing number of callers are citing the pandemic as a factor influencing their abusers. So what are those factors? Your abuser is at home. Maybe he's at home working. He has the ability to work on telecommute. Maybe your abuser is at home because his factory job is closed. They don't make something that's considered essential. Maybe your abuser is at home uh, because his shift has changed. You would normally not see him during a certain part of the day. You're at home. You're on, on unemployment. Social economic pressures turn into an escalation of violence, particularly in relationships that are already volatile. Googly Elmi adds that many officers' jobs, particularly beat cops, have pivoted during the epidemic. It's almost like we've, been, we've become public health officers. Guglielmi says, we spend the same amount of time every day fighting violence as we do, trying to tell people to stay off the streets. To be honest, a lot of people are not listening to the stay-at-home orders, Phillips notes. To some people, social distancing or the coronavirus doesn't take precedence over other other struggles that they have in their lives. One of the issues with African-American people who are living in substandard housing is social distancing is not possible for some of the black and brown people. You are you have too many people living in your home and you can't really get six feet apart. Are you gonna sleep on the street? Are you gonna be homeless? Many shelters have closed for itinerant people, homeless people, but but are open for people who are victims or at risk for domestic violence. So that's a whole nother show. What does the COVID nineteen virus look like in the homeless population? All you have to do, returning to the article, gun violence continues in Chicago amid stay-at-home orders. All you have to do is to go on the south side, and you'll see groups of people hanging out, and you'll see police parked not doing anything, says Corey Brooks, the executive director of Project Hood, a nonprofit organization in Chicago that works to end violence in the city. Guglielmi says police are now working to disperse groups ignoring social distancing rules. Like so many other frontline workers, members of the CPD have been impacted by the pandemic. A total of 151 employees have tested positive for COVID-19 as of April 9th. On April 2nd, the first officer in the department died 
as a result of the virus. A second officer in the CPD died on April 10th. His sacrifice underscores the threats that are faced by public safety employees who are not by nature of their profession allowed to shelter in place. Chicago Interim Police Superintendent Charlie Beck said of the first fatality at a press conference on April 2nd. That is a very detailed article. Thanks for listening to it. You can um, send me a direct message on Twitter on Air Angel. If you're good at searching online, look for Gun Violence Continues in Chicago amid stay-at-home orders. We're going to pause here for our um, station identification. Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Angel Fall. I want to thank my sound engineer, Scotty Reed, and the founder of the Black Talk Radio Network. We are discussing the pandemic and epidemic in Chicago. And what do we mean by that? Chicago has already been under the sieges of a gun violence epidemic, and now the city of Chicago is under siege from a pandemic, hence the title of today's show, Double Trouble. If you're following me on the Black Talk Radio Network, try to leave a comment. I'm interested in your feedback from the show. If you're listening to me on another format, you can also send me a direct message on Twitter, on Air Angel. So we just got through looking at an article um, that appeared uh, the article title was Gun Violence Continues in Chicago Amid Stay-at-Home Orders. And if you can't find it, you can always uh, send me a direct message on Air Angel. Now we're looking at another online article about the irony and the complexity of this. And this appeared in The Guardian. It's called There Are Two Pandemics, Chicago's Gun Violence Persists Amid Lockdown. <clears throat> Excuse me. The coronavirus pandemic has forced Chicago into lockdown, closing restaurants, bars, stores, and even its celebrated lakefront. But the crisis hasn't slowed the city's devastating gun violence epidemic. While crime overall has ticked down slightly and shelter-in-place orders from local leaders, shootings and murders have remained fairly consistent so far. With the city registering more shootings in March, this year than the previous year. I gave the actual data from the other article. During the first weekend of April, two were killed and 18 were wounded, mostly on the city's predominantly black and brown south and west side. So when I use black and brown, um, you may not be familiar with the term. But many of us who do uh, reporting on minority health care disparities or who have worked in the field, we use black to mean African-American and we use brown to mean Latino, um, and there are other brown groups, but that's the, pretty much the generic application. So during the first weekend of April, two were killed and 18 were wounded, mostly on the city's predominantly black and brown south and west sides. On Tuesday, an unseasonably warm temperature in Chicago rose into the 80s, which is 27 degrees Fahrenheit, that's for our European listeners, the city endured its most violent day of 2020 with at least 21 shot, including a five-year-old girl and six killed. Violence of any kind is never acceptable, the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, said at a news conference this week decrying the violence. 
But the fact that this is especially urgent right now is our ability to treat all Chicagoans as being stretched to the breaking point. We cannot allow this to happen, and we will not allow this to happen. Here's me interjecting as um, as a public health reporter. Uh, Mayor Lightfoot has not been given the correct information on how to stop gun violence because you're, you don't have to plead. She and the mayor of Boston pleading with young men not to shoot falls on deaf ears because in the throes of the conflict, the interpersonal conflict, you robbed me, you stepped in my shoes, you just respected my baby mama or my biological mama. They are not listening to this. So the men at risk must have another set of behaviors that they're able to put in place. And this is what public health outreach workers, especially those in substance abuse, call harm reduction. And in harm reduction, you, you negotiate your safety from a point of view of self-preservation. Returning to the article, the ongoing violence in America's third largest city puts additional strain to a healthcare system struggling to combat the novel coronavirus and could be exasperated by the pandemic that has dramatically altered life in the city for the foreseeable future. Today's show is called Double Trouble. And we're looking at the pandemic in Chicago and the epidemic in Chicago of gun violence. Anger, frustration, and depression doesn't get put on hold or there's a pandemic going on, said Pastor Michael Flieger of St. Sabina on the city south side. It's still there, and it's heightened right now. All it does is heighten the reality of the neglect. The coronavirus has brought to the fore the existing racial disparities in Chicago, with black residents representing a majority of COVID-19 deaths in the city and Cook County. Experts fear that the health and economic impacts of the pandemic may worsen the structural conditions that feed the violence issues, compounding the city's already pronounced race and class inequities. Again, the irony of Jean-Baptiste de Sable founding the city. I think there's going to be a lasting impact on this even beyond the direct public health impact of COVID, says Max Kapustin, senior researcher at the University of Chicago Crime Lab. The continued violence comes as hospitals in Chicago, like New York and other communities across the U.S. that have been hit so hard so far by the outbreak. They grapple with a pandemic that has stretched their limited resources. So in other words, I want you to understand, if you are listening here, if a doctor has to make a decision about an 18-year-old gangbanger with gunshot wounds and a 30-year-old white woman who needs that bed to be put on a ventilator, what do you think she's going to do? That is called treatment efficacy. Doctors are allowed to decide who can receive a treatment based on their professional opinion of who will have the best outcome. Illinois' Governor Jabri Pritzker has warned that intensive care unit beds are filling up quickly and the state needs more ventilators. As the total number of confirmed coronavirus here rises above 15,000, 
and its death toll is near five. Death toll is near 500. Again, those numbers are very fluid. They're changing, you know, as we speak. Every one of these beds, every one of these ER beds taken up by a gunshot victim could be somebody's grandmother, somebody with a pre-existing condition, somebody that's in danger of losing their lives because of the pandemic. Charlie Beck, the city's interim police chief, said in a news conference with Lightfoot. Read between the lines. The medical doctors are going to decide who needs that ICU bed. There are two pandemics in Chicago, Beck said, and only one is virus-induced. I like that. At Mount Sinai Hospital in Douglas Park on Chicago's west side, one of the best trauma centers in the country, the dueling crisis of COVID-19 and gun violence has stretched staff and resources. Even for longtime medical professionals at the facility, on the front line of the city's violence epidemic, the coronavirus pandemic has been shocking. I'm amazed by it, says Michelle Mazurek, Chief Nurse Officer and Vice President of Patient Care Services. We're used to trauma patients here. COVID is almost like its own trauma itself. The continued gun violence has forced the hospital to put into place its surge plan with educators, nurse practitioners, and Missouri herself providing patient care at the hospital. The influx sometimes is incredible, Missouri said. It is stressing on our emergency room. Mount Sinai officials said it has been able to maintain a high level of care despite the obstacles, thanks to the efforts of the staff. But, they said, the situation has already taken a toll on healthcare workers. I've been a nurse since 1993, Missouri said. This has been the hardest experience I've ever lived through. And shout out to all the first responders, all the nurses, all the people who were deemed essential. Who knew we would live in a society where someone who works at Walmart or Target has be, would become an essential employee? Who knew that our society would decide that people who deliver for Amazon and FedEx were absolutely essential? And while you're listening to me, um, say prayers for my son. He is an essential employee as a grocery store clerk at Stop and Shop in Connecticut. As of Wednesday, Chicago had seen a reported 550 shootings in 2020, up 64 from last year. That number will probably continue to grow, particularly as the weather warms in the summer months when violence in the city tends to spike. And we did a show about that, about the temperature and the relationship between violent crimes. Visit the Black Talk Radio Network project to look for some of our archived episodes. Unfortunately, the epidemic of gun violence continues to plague us every day, every hour of the day, Lightfoot said on Wednesday. This level of violence is never acceptable, never. News is under threat. Just when we need it the most, millions of readers around the world are coming to The Guardian in search of honest, authoritative, fact-based reporting that can help them understand what may be the biggest challenge we face in our lives. But at this critical moment, advertising revenue is plummeted and our news organizations are facing an essential threat. We need you to help fill the gap. So go to The Guardian and look to see. Those of us who are reporting as independently as, independently as possible, 
can often come under fire when there are other powers that don't want the truth to come out. So keep that in mind. If you just tuned in, my name is Angel Fall, and we have about 10 more minutes for this episode of Victims to Victorious. It is called Double Trouble, Chicago's Pandemic and Epidemic. So a couple times during the show, I mentioned people who go out and do interpersonal violence um, conflict resolution. They provide skills, they anticipate retaliatory killings, etc. I have started this show because of an article written by Lisa Rose Rodriguez on LinkedIn about solving this issue by looking at the interpersonal conflict skills of African American men. Why is it that they believe, so many of them believe that they can solve a conflict by shooting their their consanguine family member, brother, uncle, etc., by shooting an acquaintance to solve the conflict. Death is a permanent solution here to a temporary problem. Reading about UIC's cure violence to establish a new NGO. So, so the violence program, the violence project program here in Chicago, Cure Violence, have gone global. And that's what this article is about. Cure Violence, a globally recognized program that takes the public health approach to reducing violence, and which has been part of the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health for more than 20 years, will become an independent and non-governmental organization. Currently, Cure Violence is the number nine NGO in the world, according to NGO Advisor, and the number one NGO with a focus on addressing violence. NGO means um, non-government organization. <clears throat> Cure Violence is an example of an organization that has truly embodied how powerful basic public health concepts can be, said Dr. Wayne Giles, dean of the UIC School of Public Health. Since Cure Violence has become on the scene, has come on the scene, the idea that violence spreads like a disease has become widely accepted and transformative idea that has saved lives and reduced suffering associated with violence in communities across the globe. That is one of the number one tenets of victims to victorious. Violence is a disease. It is a curable disease. It has become an epidemic in large cities with, with large cities with large African American populations. So when you believe you have a disease, you also have to believe as a scientist, as a consumer of medical services, that there will be a cure. Interpersonal conflicts that turn into murder and other forms of morbidity and mortality for African-American men, this is preventable. It is, not, it is not something that we need to get used to. Yes, we are used to it. It's part of the culture, but it can be interrupted, hence violence interrupters. Cities around the world have turned to the cure violence model to prevent violence. If you just joined me on the computer, go to today.uic.edu and type in cure violence. Cities around the world have turned to the cure violence model to prevent violence. From sectarian violence in Iraq to community violence in Honduras to prison violence in England, the cure violence approach has been implemented in more than 100 communities across 16 countries. Programs have been established 
two communities in a, in communities in Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, and throughout Latin America, as well as in the Middle East, including Syria. Over the last three years, we have been working to put the pieces in place to establish a new NGO that would take on the work and project currently being handled by the Care of Violence Project at the University of Illinois at Chicago School of Public Health, says Dr. Gary Flutkin. I hope I'm saying his name right. We mentioned him at the very beginning of the show, that people in Chicago have already been trained to interrupt the violence. And now that there's a pandemic, some of those same people are advising people on the prevention of the COVID-19. Dr. Gary Sutton is found, Slutkin, is founder of Cure Violence and professor of epidemiology and global health in the UIC School of Public Health, and he is on LinkedIn. The UIC School of Public Health has been a partner with Cure Violence for more than two decades, and we are all proud that our work together has led to this new approach to addressing violence globally. The primary purpose of establishing this new NGO is to enable a greater impact through expanding new training and monitoring systems to be more effective at reducing violence globally through epidemic control members. That's a lot of, that's a lot of language, fancy language. <clears throat> what they are doing is saying that if more and more people around the world believe that violence is a disease, and that public health models of prevention can be applied to it, you're going to see less morbidity, which means sickness, and less mortality, which means death. Our focus will be much more on guiding and training and less on implementation, says Slutkin. Cure Violence was founded by Slutkin in 1995 and uses disease control and behavior change models to stop the spread of violence in communities around the world by detecting and interrupting conflicts, identifying and treating the highest risk individuals and changing social norms, resulting in reductions in violence of up to 70% in communities where cure violence programs are active. Reducing the, the new cases and being able to prove that are extremely important for establishing any type of public health program. So for those of you who are listening to me, you need to understand that if you have a nonprofit or grassroots organization, if programs like this are implemented, you have to be able to prove that impacted your, your, um, your local area or, the, or your target group or the focus of your program money. The Cure Violence Approach has been proven effective by multiple studies for reducing street and youth violence and is being used to tackle issues including cartel, tribal, election, prison, school, and ideologically inspired violence. The group is also routinely consulted on mass shootings, domestic violence, and violence in conflict zones. So violence in conflict zones, excuse me, refers to places in... um, Africa and the Middle East and Asia, where land and border or ideological things are being disputed or religious boundaries are being um, disputed. I'll read this last paragraph because we're almost out of time. The new NGO will initially focus on expanding its work 
in Latin America, the Caribbean, and the Middle East. There are many communities in these regions where we have had success or beginning to build partnerships and infrastructure, and where more working is being requested, says Slutkin. We are very much looking forward to this new chapter and are so appreciative of the support we've received from UIC both in the past and as we move into the next in the next phase. So if you are listening in Chicago, <clears throat> think about honoring Jean-Baptiste Point de Sable with creating your own program to reduce gun violence within the African-American community. Think about honoring your ancestor who, as an African-American man, did an extraordinary act by establishing a city that would become one of the most famous cities in the United States of America. And that's just honoring his legacy, if I can if I comment and editorialize a little bit. So the title of today's show was Double Trouble, and we looked at the pandemic of COVID-19 and the epidemic of gun violence in Chicago. My name is Angel Fall, and you you can contact me um, on uh, Twitter, on Air Angel. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, Twitter and um, Twitter handle. And if you are interested in seeing articles that are based on public health models, I'm steering you to two of them written by Lisa Rose Rodriguez on LinkedIn, who received a certificate in gun violence uh, training from Johns Hopkins. And Johns, Johns Hopkins is in the forefront of reducing or, or trying to get the model out here of reducing gun violence by using healthcare models. So it's very important for the listeners to understand that violence is in fact a disease and that the number of people who get shot, the number of people who um, who get shot and then have, coma, uh, sorry, that develop chronic illnesses, kidney failure, misuse of a hand, et cetera, all of this can be prevented. So visit LinkedIn. Look for Lisa Rose hyphen Rodriguez on LinkedIn. And you can contact her there and she can send you copies of the article and let you know how she can visit your grassroots organization and train you in these prevention models. Rose Rodriguez is hyphenated and Rodriguez is with a Z. I'm Angel Fall. Thanks for tuning in to the Black Talk Radio Network, my show, Victims to Victorious. Leave a comment on the webpage, and I'll see you next week.